Faithful Harvest, uh, we as a faith family are in the midst of what is really a multi-year pressing into having an increased understanding uh, of the totality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's always about Jesus. <laughs> that's just the fact. But especially here on Sundays, that's been what uh, such of our emphasis uh, is chosen to be. I want for us to understand Jesus more than we do now. And what we are doing here, which we really began this last year in that process, is structuring that purposely. We were in Revelation chapters 1 through 3 back in the theater before we moved over at the end of last year. And Remember Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, what that really means? I mean, the first words of the book tell what the book is about. It's the revealing of Jesus. And by the way, not the, not the, 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 the hippie sandaled uh, walkabout guy just doing talking and teaching. This is the magnified, glorified, risen Jesus Christ. And we are in Revelation 1 through 3 seeing more of that. We're now in this series of through the book of Colossians, Jesus Christ Supreme. And we're, setting, we're stepping out of that for today just because uh, I really want to prepare us for uh, this Easter season. And uh, you'll see what I'm talking about here in just a minute. So, but we're in Colossians and we'll pick up on that next week, chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. After Colossians uh, on Father's Day, we're going to dive into going through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the uh, Indiana Jones Gospel of the Bible. I mean, it's just action, bam, bam, bam. And uh, it's a really exciting book. We're going to be doing that through the rest of the year at least. And then sometime in the beginning of uh, 2015, the plan is actually to go back to Revelation, pick up in chapters 4 and take that through chapter 22. And I'll just note what I just said a minute ago. Uh, maybe going through it a little bit differently than you may have uh, sometimes on emphasis, oftentimes it's emphasized, what's the times, what's this mean, what's that mean? But listen, the purpose of the book is revealing Jesus. So we're going to be going through the rest of the book of Revelation for the purpose of pulling out, know this Jesus. He's got it all in control uh, with who he is. And so that's been a focus. And, and being that today is a communion Sunday for us, our first communion in this facility, um, the work of Jesus on the cross being that it's Palm Sunday, being that it's the start of the Easter season with the triumphal entry and everything, uh, we need to just pause and grasp the the totality and supremacy of Jesus. That's what we're going to do today, okay? You with me? You with me? Okay. Why all the fuss about Jesus? I mean, really, why all the fuss about this dude? Uh, Here's the question to be asking along with that. Who is this Jesus? I mean, who is he? I, entering into this season, um, am just really concerned that we here in America and all over the world just have this tendency to kind of box, box Jesus in. Kind of turn him into this little moment of time on Easter and Christmas where we just see him almost as a statue, almost as someone to appreciate, and we do, but just appreciate, or or someone to admire, and we do. But friends, this is really about the adoration 
of Jesus. And understanding why we adore him on this communion Sunday, on this Palm Sunday, on the start of the Easter season, we need to step in and ask the question, who is this Jesus? And am I seeing him way too small? Turn to Matthew chapter 21, please. Matthew 21. If you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to be going to a number of passages. You can see the last uh, page in the, the update there, the sermon notes page. We're going to be going to a number of passages, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, then we've got some in those book holders right behind the seats. Grab one of those. Matthew 21 is on page 826 in there. Who is Jesus? Uh, who is this Jesus? And I will tell you, for me, I am cranked up about this because I will tell you the Lord's just done uh, pressing into uh, with me. So this is going to be a you and us, or a me and you kind of a thing. Uh, my heart's going to be on the table, okay? Because this is cool, really cool stuff. Matthew 21, you there? All right, here we go. By the way, shout out what page of the Bible you're on. All right, Matthew 21. <laughs> that was random. Matthew 21, the triumphal entry, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, Bethphage is basically like kind of what Avon would be. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. Uh, when they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, how many? Saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he, they will let you have them. (laughs) That's cool. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, saying, uh, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks. And they sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Pause there just for a second. I think you can read this and have a very small picture of what's happening here. Just let me add a couple uh, pieces of information. It's Passover time. The city of Jerusalem at this time and kind of its surrounding area normally would have a population somewhere around 250,000. At the time of Passover, not everybody from Israel, the nation, would be coming, but many, many would. And actually the city and the surrounding area would increase to a population. Really a low year would be a million people. On a high year would be 2 million people. I think this was a high year. This was the kind of year because of what was taking place, not only with Jesus, but all that was going on with the government and everything taking place. This was probably a time when people were really wanting to be able to come into Jerusalem. And I think there were probably 1.5 to 2 million people comprising this area for the Passover season. And then when you read the triumphal entry, and you watch the movies, oftentimes, as much as they try and do a good job with that, oftentimes you get this impression that there are probably like, you know, maybe a couple hundred, 500 people, maybe a thousand people in this triumphal entry thing going, Hosanna, Hosanna, throwing their clothes and <laughs> cloaks and, their, and the palm branches down and stuff like that and doing that. Uh, but I actually don't think that's the case. I think just by the sheer statistics of the reality of it and what was happening at that time, triumphal entry probably had some 50 
to 100,000 people involved in this at minimum. And in this, this Hosanna and this is going, this is massive numbers of people. And you see this triumphal entry and all these people. And it's just like, this is an awesome thing. Hosanna in the highest. And then pick up verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem and surrounding area had gone from 250,000 to potentially 2 million people. There was just a mass number of people in the temple area and everywhere that you went. And, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Like all hundreds of thousands, hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people. The whole city is stirred up saying, who is this? (laughs) And who is this? Why would they be asking that? Who is this? Because of what's just been happening out there with the 50, 100, 200,000 people making the big hubbub about this dude coming in. And he comes into the city and everybody's like, whoa, 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 dudes, what's going on here? This is a huge event in the time. Who is this? And verse 11, and the crowds said, I think the crowds is it's referring to, those people that are throwing their cloaks down, those people that are putting the palm branches down, the people that, are in, that was in that crowd, those 50, 100,000 people plus, those people are saying this. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the prophet Jesus. Words matter. Words matter a lot. And the detail of understanding who this Jesus is and saying who this Jesus is, is absolutely critical. Your adoration of Jesus is directly tied to your understanding of who Jesus is. And here in this this whole thing, they are saying, this is the prophet Jesus. Close, but not. It's right, but not really right. Before I go any further, if you're uncomfortable with this idea of asking the question, who is this? Uh, Let's all turn over to Matthew 16, just a couple pages over. Matthew 16. I just want to alleviate any potential weirdness feeling about asking who is this Jesus because the truth of the matter, Jesus was all about people asking who is this Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is a little time together with Jesus and the, and the disciples. And it says, verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Hey guys, who do people say that the son of man is? By the way, son of man, that's a, that's a title that comes out of Daniel. Okay? Not just anything random talk. That's a title term. So he's asking them, hey guys, who do you think, who, who do people say that I am? Answer, Jesus knew what people were saying about him. They, Jesus knew what people thought about him. But he was drawing out their heart. He was asking them to be able to hear from them. Are they grasping what's going on? And look at what they say. Verse 14, and they said, well, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist, essentially raised from the dead. Others say Elijah raised from the dead or uh, Elijah. And others say Jeremiah. But look at the last one. Or one of the prophets. That's what other people are saying about you. And this event was taking place before the triumphal entry. So people are saying that you're this or you're this or you're this or that you're one of the prophets. Go to the triumphal entry. Who is this? This is the prophet, Jesus. 
Now consider the rest of uh, chapter 16. Uh, Jesus said to them, hey, but who do you say that I am? That's the question on the table, not only for them, but that's the question on the table for you and me right now. Seriously, who do you say that Jesus is? Hey guys, who do you say that Jesus is? Who, Who do you say that Jesus is? How would you answer that? Well, I want us to go to a passage in John chapter 1. Turn there. Hang a right in your Bible to John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I want for us to see how someone answers the question, essentially. We're looking at John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, uh, in John chapter 1. Who is this Jesus? Look at a term that John used, and then we're going to camp on this term because, friends, I'm just going to tell you, for me this week, this just blew my mind. I did not understand this last week the way I am this week. And that excites me, growing and changing. John chapter 1, look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem... Okay, these are the, the leaders in, the religious political leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, they sent these guys to ask John, who are you? Same question going on, but now just with John. Who are you? And John confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That's the title. I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, well, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Boy, is this not sounding familiar? Okay, are you Elijah? And he said, no, not. Are you the prophet? Isn't that interesting? Are you the prophet? Not. No. Uh, 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 well, then, so who are you, dude? We, dudes in the Greek hid, hidden in there. Uh, we need to give an answer to those who sent us from Jerusalem. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now jump down to verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, the, pause. John could have used any term he wanted. He could have used the term, there's the son of man out of Daniel. He could have used any kind of term. To, to, to right at this point in time, Jesus is on the planet, face on the earth. John, the one crying out of preparing the way for the one. What's the term that John uses here? Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb. Now go down to verse 35. The next day, which day? The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as Jesus was walking by, and he said, again, behold the Lamb of God. Friends, I'm going to tell you, I've heard that all the time, and uh, over the years of growing up and going to church and so forth, and the Lamb, and it's kind of cool, and and all of that, and, and it's sweet. I mean, lambs are sweet, aren't they? I would think. They look so cute in cartoons. And they're so innocent, and they're so storybook, and they're so woolly and lamby. Behold the lamb. Is that, is that what he's talking about? Behold the lamb. 
We need to understand this term because John uses this term that has a breadth of meaning. And this is the thing I'm saying just so impressed me this week. A breadth of meaning that that goes from Genesis to Revelation. Join with me. And let's go to some passages. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you remember last week, if you were here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, we talked out of that passage where in chapter 2, verse 17, it makes the statement that uh, in it that um, uh, the shadow... This is, these are shadow things, and they were getting caught up in shadow things. If you're here last week, you remember I was using just my water bottle there, and it's like the water bottle casts a shadow down on it, and the shadow represents the substance of the thing that's there. But try and drink that shadow like I tried last week. It's going to leave you wanting, Okay? But the shadow is about the substance. And when the substance comes, honestly, the shadow may be cool. Because actually, I've got like three shadows going on here. Because of, and that's kind of funky and cool. But listen, it's not about the shadow. It's about the substance, right? That's what Jesus was saying in Colossians 2. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament things talk about, don't get caught up in the shadow stuff. And yet, these are shadows. We're going to see five shadows out of the Old Testament. There's tons more, but we're just going to go to five because the shadows tell about the substance. Friends, the lamb, that term, if you will, the concept, the shadow of that term is all the way in the very beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1, God created everything. Genesis 2, it's a narrowing down on the time of creating Adam and Eve and and their call to them. Chapter 3, we enter in. If you have subheadings on there, it says the fall, the Adam and Eve sin. God said, don't do that. And they're like, hey, let's do that. And so they sinned. We're going to join after they sinned. Verse 7, then the eyes of both, the eyes of who? Both being Adam and Eve were opened and they knew that they were naked. Just side note, of all the things to note, why that? I still don't quite get that. But they were naked, they were exposed. Something happened in their realization, and look what happened. They tried to cover it, and they sewed fig leaves together. Fig leaves, wow, ouch. They tried to sew fig leaves together to make loincloths, to make clothing for them. Adam and Eve sinned, and they tried to cover their sin. So they made something from what was available to them to try and cover, bring them back in relationship with the Lord. Let's keep going here. Down in verse 14, the Lord is talking to Satan. He confronts Satan and the woman and the man. We're going to just take a look at the verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, said to Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat, days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your offspring, your children, and her offspring, her children. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is so interesting. They sin. God comes and has a conversation with them. And God is already making this statement in here. There is going to be a unique offspring of the woman. By the way, not the man. A unique offspring of the woman. A male, by the way 
who will deal Satan a lethal blow. And just to get on with it, because you've got so many other passages to go to, basically this text is essentially prophesying the fact that Satan dealt Jesus a bruising blow at the cross. But at the cross and the resurrection, Jesus ultimately dealt Satan a lethal blow. That's all the way back in the very beginning. Already we have God at work, a shadow of laying out of what's to come. And by the way, I think there's a potential shadow here of the lamb in this. And I go all the way to a lamb from this standpoint. Look at verse 20 in the chapter. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothes them. Why? They already had some clothing. They already had some clothing that they had made to cover themselves up. Apparently to God, what they thought was good covering, God was like, that doesn't suffice. I have to step in and I have to clothe you. I have to bring to you a clothing. What kind of a clothing? A skin clothing, not a tree clothing, a skin clothing. If you have skin clothing, what has to take place? Death. And Roman tells us that sin brought death. And God sacrifices, kills an animal to put covering on them so that they could be able to be back in relationship. Are you seeing a shadow here? Listen, I'm not making this stuff up or pulling it out of context here. It's very clear. Might the skin have been a lamb? Don't know. But it might have been. And by the way, I wonder if Adam and Eve saw for really the first time one of their animals killed for their disobedience. The gospel's in the beginning. Shadow of it. Let's keep on going here. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 8 because there's more shadows. More shadows. Genesis chapter 8, we're here with Noah. Uh, Noah, uh, the boat has landed. And uh, if you go up to chapter 8, verse 13, 14, it talks about time. Uh, Just to quickly get there. Basically, since the day of the flood starting, Noah and his family and the animals have been on the ark for some 371 days. Okay, by the time what we're going to read happens. That's like a year, right? If I have my days right, is that about a year? It's about a year. A year, all the animals are on there. And by the way, they weren't like smoked and slept like the movie. But all the animals, what happens over a year? Mommy and a daddy animal have little animals. And by the way, there wasn't every animal. There was every kind of animal. And look what happens in verse 20. Noah, when it lands, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Why? Why? I mean, God had just brought judgment. 
God had taken care of the whole thing. And yet here, all of a sudden we see Noah building an altar. And Noah is taking one of every kind of the animals, of the clean animals, and and of of the birds, and killing them and sacrificing. I I, I like animals. That hurt. When you're feeding and caring for all these animals for a year. And then you sacrifice it. Shadow, shadow, we're getting more of an idea. Continue ahead, turn to Genesis chapter 22. I'm just grabbing pieces because the shadow's in between every one of these. Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac, uh, uh, God promised Abraham that he would raise a nation from him. Abraham and Sarah didn't have any children, they're old, then they have, by God's gifting, they have a child, his name is Isaac. Isaac is raised up, and and then God in chapter 22 tells Isaac to take his, Abraham to take Isaac and to sacrifice him on on an altar. And we see from Hebrews that uh, Abraham uh, understood in it by faith that Abraham was obeying God because he knew that God would raise Isaac from the dead. And so that's what he's going on. We jump in chapter 22, verse 7. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, by the way, uh, Isaac is not like five, six years old at this time. Isaac is most likely in his teens. The dude's got thinking. He can understand. He knows what's going on with a number of things. He doesn't know he's the lamb, if you will. But verse 7, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and dad said, here I am, son. And, And Isaac said, behold, the fire in the wood. But dad, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isn't that interesting? That is the first time in the Old Testament that we see the word lamb brought up. We've been seeing the shadow. Now the shadow becomes a little bit more clear because now it includes a lamb. Uh, uh, Isaac, a teen. But dad, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. And then, by the way, jump over. Uh, they go, and God, uh, Abraham, by faith, is literally ready to sacrifice his son. And, and God stops him, verse 13. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. A ram. Now, we Americans, I think, we generally think of a ram like Rocky Mountains. We used to go to Colorado every year growing up when I was a boy. And, and I always saw this as like, you know, rams are, man, those dudes are like studs. You know, like the big ram. But wait a second, a ram can be a male lamb. Shadow, shadow of the substance. Let's go to another passage. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We come into Exodus, we are, uh, chapter 12 is, is the Passover. There have been nine plagues being dealt out. God's people, the Hebrews, have been slaves in Egypt now for some 400 years. And then Moses comes up on the scene and, and we see them here in this. The plagues are going and, and, and chapter 11 is about the final plague communicated. Chapter 12 is about that, including the Passover. Uh, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt... This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God put in place a new calendar, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take what? A lamb. Why a lamb? Because the sheep 
need a lamb. Because the sheep need a lamb to take their place. And here we see this, take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Verse 4, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can, uh, you can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male. And then they're to kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7, and then they shall take some of the blood, and they'll paint the blood over the top and the two sides of the entry into their house. And by the way, friends, every Jew and or Gentile that heard about this had a choice to make. They had a choice to make whether they were going to do this. Or they could all just go, it's ridiculous, I'm not. But those who did and what God had provided for them, and those who took a lamb and sacrificed that lamb and took the blood and through the process that God had put and they painted the blood over their house. And then that night, they and their family hunkered down in their house covered by the blood of the lamb and the angel of God bringing judgment passes over. And any home that does not have the blood of the lamb applied to them. God brings judgment. Can you imagine that night? There you are. It's like, you know, you're doing this because you trust God in it and then painting over the entry of your house and then there you are with your family. I mean, you know, Karen and I and Luke and Emily when they were younger and were like hunkering down in the house and listen, you, you could hear in the distance cries of a firstborn son being judged, their family judged and death being brought and the screams of that. I got to tell you, at that point, I'm like, well, God, this is for real, isn't it? Well, God, do you see the faith in this? We miss this too often. Like the people just paint, and then they're inside playing Parcheesi. No, no, no. That night, they're hunkered down. Oh, God, spare us. What spared them? Not their good works, not their good looks, not their good clothing, the blood applied to their home. And God passes over that. The shadow of the Lamb. It is just so awesome. Turn to Isaiah 53, middle of the Bible, page 613 in my Bible, if that helps at all. Isaiah, it's after Psalms. You just flip through there, you'll find it. Isaiah chapter 53, last Old Testament passage we'll go to. From the garden to, to Abraham and Isaac, to, or to Noah, to Abraham, to, to Moses and the people of Israel, we jump into Isaiah and he's talking about the prophecy of the one who would come, the Messiah. Chapter 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. John chapter 1. John sees Jesus. Behold, the lamb. Now do you see why? Really? Now are we seeing more why? Why that term? Why not other terms? Why not more of a description? Why not more Messiah? Why not the word Christ? Why not this? Because from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, there's this picture, this beautiful picture of the reason as to why Jesus Christ was even coming, the second person of the Trinity. Why in the world he was even coming to the earth that he created, Colossians chapter 1, that we looked at. Why would he do that? Because he was coming to be the lamb for the sheep. And John nailed it. Who is Jesus? Jesus is not just a prophet. That means he's like Moses. That means he's like Isaiah. That means he's like Zechariah. That means he's just like any other human being that has a unique ability to communicate things. That is not Jesus. He is the lamb. And there's been nobody in history that is the lamb who had come and die. That's why John said what he said. Oh, guys, Jesus is so much bigger than you and I think. But it doesn't stop in John. It doesn't even stop at the end of the Gospels. Go to Mark chapter 14, actually. Let's go to Mark. Just a f- couple more things on this. Because it's not just the lamb in the past, but we see the lamb uh, at the crucifixion. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Uh, And on the first day on leavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus said the triumphal entry was coming in at the time of Passover. And so the whole idea of the Passover lamb is big. Uh, There were probably some 200,000 lambs that are sacrificed at Passover time. Mark chapter 15 The death of Jesus. Jesus is now on the cross. Look at verse 33, Mark 15. And when the sixth hour had come, sixth hour, you can look at your footnotes if you have that. The sixth hour is noon. It's noon. What time? It's noon. The sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land. How cool is God? God, At the brightest time of the day, God makes it dark. Only God can do that. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. Which time? Ninth hour, which is? At 3 p.m., Jesus cried out, Aloy, Aloy, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. What time was this? 3 p.m., and someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. 
And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. At what time? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At what time? Why did they put the time in there? Here's why. Because at Passover time, on Passover day, there were actually kind of two times of the day, two, two different days if you were in northern, northern Israel, southern Israel. But what would happen is they would sacrifice the lambs between 3 and 5 p.m. Between 3 and 5 p.m. That meant that the sacrificing of the lambs started to happen at what time? When did Jesus give up his life? What time? You see what's happening? Over in the temple, they are preparing, waiting for the clock to go down. Five, four, three, two, one. A loyal voice. Got it? At the time when the lambs were to be sacrificed, the lamb gives up his life. God knows it down to the minutia. Isn't that cool? It's so cool, you guys. I mean, right at that moment, no more lambs needed to be sacrificed. No more. Because the lamb is sacrificed right at 3 p.m. Boom. That's what this season is all about, by the way. God's got it in full control from Genesis all the way to this. Oh, by the way, turn to Revelation chapter 5 because it doesn't end at the cross or the resurrection. Do you realize in the book of Revelation, the word lamb is used more in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible? 27% of all uses of the word lamb, Greek or Hebrew in the Bible, are used in Revelation. Why? Let's see. Revelation chapter 5. John, the apostle John. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Let me breathe. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Well, that sounds like the original question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll to seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw... Of anything he could say. Of anything that John could declare. John the apostle uses the descriptive term. I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain at 3 p.m. on Good Friday. 
with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll, the lamb did, from the right hand of him, the father who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Now it's not just John the Baptist. Now it's not just John the Apostle. It's the angels in the heavenlies using the exact same term. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, now I'm getting it. <laughs> I'm serious. Now I'm starting to get it. He's that big, you guys. He's that big. Turn over to Revelation 7. Revelation 7. Verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Look, 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 look at this. Clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. God rocks. Palm Sunday happening in heaven in the Lamb. End of verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Go to Revelation 21, last passage. Revelation 21, verse 22. 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. This is the eternal state. This is heaven for eternity. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine out for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which it's 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. Bam.
in light of all of that, appreciation just sounds so wimpy. I so appreciate you, Jesus. Admiration sounds so wimpy. I'm so inspired by you, Jesus. What should be happening? Increasingly so. My life, your life, and in this church's life. Face down adoration. The revelation reality. More of that in me. More of that in you and I. Let's stop boxing Jesus into this little statuette. Let's stop just let's stop just admiring him. Just giving him some little homage at Easter. Oh man, that's just tragic compared to the reality. Full adoration. More of that. More of that in you and more of that in me. I don't even fully know what that looks like. But today I'm just trying to lay it on the table. More of that. Let's break the box. Let's get rid of the statuette. And let's see Jesus fully as he is increasingly so, right? More of that. And so friends, as we conclude today, we're going to take communion together. So could I ask the communion servers just to get, get ready to serve us for that? And here, pay, please pay attention to me. Stay with me. When we take communion today, oh, may we dare not take communion in an admiring Jesus and just an appreciating Jesus way. No, no, no. We got to take communion in an adoration reality today. Because the blood of the lamb, the, the, the sacrifice of the life of the lamb, that's the thing. That's what it's about from Genesis to Revelation. It's not just five or ten minutes. This is full out, on the table, face down, adoration, big God. I struggle to see you, Lord. Help me know you more. Communion is about remembering the death of the Lamb. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior... If you come to the place where you not just know about, but if you come to the place where you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is an opportunity for us to, in a physical way, remember what the Lamb has done. And I invite you to participate. If you're at a place where you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're trying to figure all this stuff out, hey, that's okay. I am thrilled that you are here, and I pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to be able to better help you see who Jesus is. And I would just encourage you, just, just hang in your seat. That's fine. There's no embarrassment going on. But just for you, just you need to be asking the question, who is this Jesus? So if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior here in just a moment, the worship team is going to lead us here in just a moment. Come up and grab a cup and, and, and grab the, the bread. Bring it back to your seat. And then we'll partake together here in just a moment. This is all about the Lamb. It's all about the Lamb. It's all about sacrifice blood shed 